Hey, we got word this morning that uh, our brother Norm Powers was taken to the hospital since he got here this morning. He had some dizziness, shortness of breath, so I'm going to pray for him um, before I pray for God to breathe into this sermon. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we think about our brother Norm right now, and as Keith has taken him to the emergency room, we ask that you would intervene and that you would show yourself strong by watching over Norm, protecting him. And Lord, uh, we pray that this is just a scare and nothing more serious. Um, But Lord, please give wisdom and insight to doctors, help them to be able to get in quickly and figure out quickly what it is that's going on and uh, please protect and watch over him. And now Lord, because you're big and because you love us, we do have hope and gladness in you. And I ask that over these next minutes, that the words that I say and the thoughts we all think will be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Hey, I wonder if any of you have had this experience. You went off to college, and maybe your freshman year, you were assigned a roommate by the school. But then over the course of your time at college, you made some friends of your own. And you got close to those friends, and eventually you decided, hey, next year, let's live together um, by choice. And you're all excited because these are people you connect with, you have a lot of shared interests with, you figure these people will probably be the people that stand in my wedding one day, we'll raise our kids together, this will be awesome. And then you actually move in together, and you realize these people weren't at all what I thought they were, right? There's dishes in the sink for three days straight, and you confront the person and they're like, I don't understand, what's the big deal, right? The light gets flipped on in the middle of the night when you're trying to sleep and you're like, what's going on with this? And she's like, well, my family is always able to sleep through having the lights on, right? And you realize when you're living with someone, it's a little bit different. Now, some of you are like, no, I never, that wasn't my experience. It was great living with my roommates. Could be because you were the friend who was the problem, (laughs) right? Give that some thought. But when we live in close community, close proximity to one another like family, even the smallest differences between us and our backgrounds, the ways we were raised, those can get magnified into really, really big issues. And in our text today, in Acts chapter 6, we see that the church is dealing with some of those very problems, those family issues when a bunch of people from all different backgrounds start trying to live closely in community with one another. It's been a little while since we've been in Acts, but this is the book of the Bible that we've been working through all year long, and we've been taking breaks from it here and there, but we're now in Acts 6. And if you remember, the story of Acts is a story of the message of Jesus Christ going out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said it would. And where we are in Acts 6 right now, it's actually still in Jerusalem. It hasn't left Jerusalem yet, but within Jerusalem, some amazing things have been happening that we've heard preached in the last several months. In chapters 2 and 4 in particular, the believers are living as family. They're treating each other as family, sharing things in common, dealing with family issues. And now in chapter 6, we're going to see that they deal with some family unity issues that every family goes through, and we'll see how they have to uh, address those. And we'll see that even the smallest differences when you're living in family can result in big issues. So as I read verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 6, 
Um, If you haven't turned there already, turn there with me and read along and see if you see the family issue, the family unity issue that they're dealing with and see how how the church dealt with it. Here it is, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Before we dive too deep into it, I want to just on a big picture level point out one feature in the text that kind of unlocks the meaning of the whole. This text, verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 6, is what's called an inclusio. Technically, I like to call it a sandwich. Sorry to those of you who are hungry, I'm making the problem worse. But it's a sandwich because the beginning matches the end. Verse 1 matches verse 7. In verse 1, it says uh, the disciples were increasing in number. And then in verse 7, it says the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So when there's one of these sandwiches in Scripture, what the biblical author is trying to do is to show that the beginning matches the end for a reason. And what happens in the middle tells the story of why the end matches the beginning. So in other words, in our text, the church growth that's happening in verse 7 is still happening after verse 1 because of the way the problem in verses 2 through 6 was worked out. So this problem, this is one of two times in the New Testament, only twice, does the church drop everything it's doing to call a council where all the Christians come together to work out a problem that is so urgent that it immediately needs to be attended to. And you know this church in Acts faced persecution from the Jewish authorities. This church in Acts had their religious freedoms taken away. This church in Acts eventually would get to the point where the Roman emperor was lighting his garden with Christians on poles who he set on fire to light his garden. In none of those cases did the church call a meeting, a council, for everybody to come together and address the issue. There's two times when the church comes together to address an issue. And both here in Acts 6 and the other time in Acts 15, it's when there's a family unity issue. That's what the church drops everything for to deal with. And so we're going to see one of those today. Um, And that's why our big idea is this. It's aggressively preserve unity in the church so that God's word can continue to spread. So God's word spreading, that's verses 1 and 7, the bread on the sandwich, right? That God's word was spreading in verse 1, it's continuing to spread in verse 7. And what happens in the middle is the aggressive preserving of unity that's led by the apostles, but that the whole church takes part in. Um, So that's what we're going to look at today, aggressively preserving unity in the church so God's work can continue to spread. The early church had to preserve their unity if they had any hope of this word about Jesus going out from Jerusalem 
to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth as a unified message and not just a fractured, splintered movement, right? And in this text, I'm seeing three ways that we can preserve unity in our own church. And so we're just going to walk through, spend the rest of our time walking through those three ways that we can preserve unity, uh, all coming from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. First one is this, the church must care for its own. That's the first way we can preserve unity. The church must care for its own. The church is caring for its own. In verse 1, as you saw, you saw that term, the daily distribution. At the end of verse 1, it's that they've set up some sort of voluntary welfare or food ministry to help those in the church who are in need, especially, particularly, it seems, widows. Um, The problem with this food ministry was that the Hellenists among the widows weren't benefiting from the food ministry in the same way the Hebrews among the widows were benefiting from it. The difference between the two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews, was a language difference. You might see that in the footnote in your Bible there in verse 1. The Hellenists were, these are all Jewish people, because we're still in Jerusalem in the earliest stages of the church. But the Hellenists were the Greek-speaking Jews. And the Hebrews, so to speak, were the Jews who had always been Jerusalem people, or at least people living in Palestine, who were still speaking Aramaic, right? And so the division, the difference is between those two groups, the Greek speakers and the Aramaic speakers. It's a language difference. It's a language barrier. You can imagine how disunity could be possible in such a situation when the church is growing so fast and different languages are involved. You know, I think about, I am almost all Irish, And just two generations ago, my grandparents were living in Ireland. But if I would go back and move to Ireland today, uh, particularly to a community that was still speaking Gaelic, and I tried to join a church there, we'd have some issues to work through, right? There would be some wires getting crossed because even though I'm ethnically the same as all of them, there's two generations of speaking English in America has made a divide between how I've experienced the world and how they have, right? And so that's the kind of dynamic that we're seeing here between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. And that's why some Christians in every generation have concluded that, you know what, it would be easiest if we just all just worship with our own kind, right? It'd be, it's so hard to try to work through these types of issues. Why isn't it just, we just all worship with people who look like us, who talk like us, who um, do theology the same way we do it, right? It would be easier, and that's appealing if we are honest with ourselves in some moments. And if that doesn't, if you aren't willing to admit that that seems appealing, maybe you haven't had an experience where for a prolonged period of time you were worshiping in a place that was culturally different from what you're most comfortable with. When you do that for a prolonged period of time, you do start to feel the appeal of, I want to go back to having a Sunday where I can just be me and be comfortable, right? And worship in a way that matches the culture that I came from. There's an appeal there, and it's not appealing. It doesn't pull at us because we're especially awful people. It pulls at us because we're human beings. And all fallen human beings experience that pull. The early church would have experienced that pull. It's the reason why... 10 a.m. on Sunday morning is still the most segregated time in America each week, right? On top of the pull that's inside of us, we have an enemy who's working night and day to try to divide us, especially at times when the Lord is really at work, like in Acts 6 when the church is growing. 
That's when he really wants to get in there and try to create divisions from inside the ranks, right? There's nothing that he would want more than at a time when exciting things are happening here at North Sub to get in between and start divisions among us. And so for that reason, the apostles know that. And so as dangerous as they believe it is, this offense that has taken place in the food ministry, it's even more dangerous in their minds, the disunity that might be caused by it down the road if it's not addressed and dealt with well. And so that's why it's important enough to call an all-church council. And that's why I put the word aggressive in that big idea, because that's how they deal with it. They go right after it. They, all hands on deck, we're all going to gather together and deal with this issue right here and right now, because it's an urgent, urgent issue to care for our own, all of our own. You know, and I think about where are the points of potential disunity at North Sub right now. You know, this is a time where there's a lot of changes taking place in and around our church, right? The scenery's kind of changing all around us with restore and renew. Um, patterns of foot traffic are changing in some parts of the church. Our logo has been changed. Pretty soon the signage out front will be changed. Um, the security practices downstairs are undergoing a little bit of an overhaul. Um, with all these changes, the enemy looks at those as an opportunity to create division because for every one of those changes, somebody gets kind of bumped out of their comfort zone just a little bit, right? And there's nothing the enemy would love more than to use that to divide us. Um, so what do we do? What do we do when we realize there's potential for that and we have an enemy that's working against us? I think there's two things we see happening here. One is the offended party in the text, they don't just say, well, we're going to take our ball and go home, so to speak, right? They don't say, okay, well, we knew it. You guys are going to treat us like second-class Christians because we speak Greek. Fine, we're going to start another church down the street for the Greek speakers, and we're going to take care of our own. That's not how they handled it, right? They took it to the apostles so that the apostles could deal with it. On the flip side, the leaders, the apostles, didn't just write off the complaint as though, you know, people are always whiny, complaining they're so entitled around here, right? They didn't just end the food ministry because this is more trouble than it's worth. And you know what? If you can't be grateful, we're not going to have it anymore, right? That's not where they went with it. Where they went with it was, we're all family now, and our family's growing, and it's experiencing growing pains, and we're trying to figure this out, how to all love each other well, and now we're speaking, coming from places where we speak different languages, but you're in the family and we need to treat you like family and so we're going to address this offense and make it right, right now. And I want to make sure that everybody gets that here this morning because you'd be leaving with the wrong idea if you left here this morning thinking, you know, we talked about ending disunity this morning. And so what that means is anybody who has any kind of complaint, anybody who's not totally in line with the direction the leadership of the church is taking, just keep it quiet, keep it to yourself stifle that, and then we'll have unity, right? That's not how unity is created in this text. Unity is created by people speaking up in love instead of just running away and uh, starting their own thing. And it's created by leadership listening well, and when they hear that offense, rectifying it. As a result, the church cares for its own, cares for all of its own. And we see in this text, in Acts chapter 6, that this is more than just a charity issue. This is more than just compassion, benevolence, charity. This is a unity issue, actually. Because when the church is caring for its own, it's going to be more united than it would be otherwise. 
Second thing I see in this text as a way to preserve unity, everybody in the church must play their role. Everybody in the church must play their role. Have you ever had an experience where you had a crisis and that crisis helped you to clarify what was really important? Anybody ever had that experience where a crisis helps you clarify what's really important? That often happens in times of crisis, and I think that's what the apostles experience here in this text, right? If you think back to when this food ministry, this voluntary welfare system was created within the church, it was created in the midst of a time of persecution. The apostles for the previous chapters have been in and out of jail. The church is growing beyond what they could have expected. They're trying to figure it all out, and they created a food ministry to take care of widows in the midst of that. Uh, They never expected it to get this big. They never expected it to encompass people speaking different languages, right? So now a conflict comes up about it, and it helps them to just step back and just say, okay, listen, there's a lot of things we could be doing with our time as apostles. What are we really supposed to be spending our time on? And they come to the conclusion in verses 2 and verse 4 of what they should be doing. I think they're thinking back to the words that Jesus left them with, in Acts, 1 and, in Acts 1, and then we see it playing out in Acts 2, that their role is supposed to be, what do they say in verse 2? It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So in the midst of this crisis, they come to this clarity, this razor-sharp focus, that what they're supposed to be devoting themselves to primarily is the ministry of the word and prayer. That's what the apostles are supposed to be devoting themselves to. And it's not that they don't care about the food ministry or don't want it to happen. They really, really want it to happen. It's just that they conclude, you know what? We need to focus on what we're supposed to focus on. And let's raise up some new leaders to take care of this important food ministry that needs to happen. Um, But let's raise up seven people who can take care of that so that we can be freed up to focus on what we're really supposed to be focusing on. They bring that suggestion to the people and the people... It says, are pleased by it. But I think this is more than just an interesting story for us as a church today in 2017. And the reason is because this pattern, this model of apostles and then the seven, as the New Testament plays out, it gets mapped out to what we have in our church today, which is elders and deacons who are serving in leadership positions in the church. Here's what I mean. The apostles here are focusing on ministry of the word and prayer. As you read the rest of the New Testament, well, there's no more apostles after the first round of apostles dies out. Who becomes the people who are focusing on the ministry of the word and prayer? Well, it's elders in the church who are consistently called to focus on those two things, right? And then the seven, they're not called deacons in this passage, But almost all scholars agree that this is the beginning of what would eventually in the New Testament become a formal position called deacon. And what it really boils down to is they are doing the ministries in the church that will free up the apostles and now the elders to devote their time to the shepherding tasks that they're really called to primarily, which is the ministry of the word and to prayer. So we have this two-part system here at North Sub for that reason. Um, We're looking at the New Testament and how it's played out in this official role of deacons and how later in the New Testament we see women in that role. Phoebe is uh, called a deacon. And in 1 Timothy 3, there are qualifications given for female deacons. And so we have deacons and deaconesses 
who lead in our church. And we have elders who lead in our church. And what our deacons and deaconesses do is ministries like they head up our benevolence funds, our benevolence ministries for people who are in need, who are struggling. They um, come alongside people who are hurting and struggling and sick. And they offer care and encouragement and comfort to those people. Um, And they help serve the ordinances, baptism and communion. They do all of that so that, in part why they do it, is so that our elders can be freed up to shepherd and lead in the way that they're primarily called to lead, which is focusing on the ministry of the word and prayer. There's two misunderstandings that could come from that, though. One would be that deacons aren't supposed to teach the word or pray because they're supposed to do the other things so the elders can do that. We can't conclude that from this text because Stephen and Philip, who are two of the deacons, so to speak, in this text, they're preachers in the next couple chapters, right? So it's not that, the, that nobody else besides the elders does ministry of the word and prayer in the church. It's just that nobody else in the church is called to have that as their number one primary laser focus the way that the elders are. The other misunderstanding, I think, would be that what deacons do isn't spiritual. That the elders do the spiritual things, and the deacons do the, take care of the physical needs. That can't be justified from this text either, because the qualifications for a deacon are spiritual qualifications. We'll come back to those qualifications in a moment, but if you think about how this ministry that the seven were performing would actually play out, it's going to deal with ministry to people getting in people's homes, hearing their complaints, helping people work through disagreements. This is a great deal of pastoral care that goes into being a deacon or a deaconess. And this is a spiritual, very, very spiritual ministry. So it's appropriate that we have role distinctions in the church and that people live into their role that they've been uniquely called to in the church And we see that as the church grows and acts, it's appropriate to add new leaders to the church and new positions that will help free up the elders to do what they're called to in the ministry of the word and prayer. The apostles see that. They raise up leaders. And here's just maybe a challenge that I'd have for some of you as I think about how this applies here at North Sub. Many of you have just started coming here in the last month or two. Um, And we're really excited about that. There's been a nice influx of folks coming in and joining our family here in the last couple of months, and you've brought kind of a shot in the arm, a new vitality to our church. But now that it's been a month or two, uh, maybe it's time to think about this. Maybe it's time for you to start thinking about what role are you going to play here? How are you going to jump in and serve in our church body? And in other contexts, we might talk about this as, you know, there's a small group of people who tend to do everything in churches. That's the way churches tend to go. And so we want to take some things off their plate But this morning, the challenge from Acts 6 isn't precisely that. The challenge from Acts 6 is, hey, this is actually a unity issue, that you step up and play a role in this church. Because if you don't, somebody else is going to have to, and that's going to eventually get pushed up and up and up until the elders, these things are coming back to the elders when they're not getting done, and the elders will be diverted from their task of leading us through the ministry of the word and prayer, having to deal with these other things that they were not called to deal with. Um, So consider what role you might play in the church if you aren't already. And finally, leaders must be carefully selected. That's the third principle that I see here as a way to preserve unity in the church. And none of these three 
are obviously unity-preserving things at first glance, but as it works out in our text, we see that they are. There's plenty of lessons about leadership selection here in these seven verses. One of them you probably noticed if you worked through the preview questions this week. One of the preview questions this week um, was about the names of the seven people uh, who are chosen as these first deacons. And the question was, what do they have in common? Well, what they have in common in verse 5 is that they are all Greek names. They're all Greek names. And so think about the significance of that. Think about what this problem was originally. The problem was that the Greek-speaking widows are the ones who are being overlooked. And so what does the church do? They nominate seven people with Greek names who would apparently be Greek speakers to take care of the problem of not serving the Greek-speaking community in the church well enough, right? So maybe if we're trying to take a principle from that, it's that when there's an issue, raise up leaders to deal with it and consider having at least some of those leaders come from the offended party. Seems like there's a lot of wisdom in that sort of leadership selection. Um, Here specifically in this text, as we've been noting, it's a cultural difference, specifically linguistic. And so it's worth us just kind of stopping for a moment and thinking about how this is going here at North Sub. Um, We have significant diversity in our church, but we're not a super diverse church, right? Um, Part of that is we're living, we're situated in the midst of suburbs that aren't super diverse. Um, But that doesn't excuse us to just not ever think about this. We need to give thought to, does the diversity in our church reflect the diversity of the suburbs around us, the neighborhoods around us? And the degree, to the degree that it doesn't, we need to think about what kind of practices are we putting in place that are making our brothers and sisters, maybe not from the majority culture or uh, who come from different social backgrounds than we do, what's making them feel uncomfortable, like this isn't their family, this couldn't be their church home. So we think about those things and we revisit those things. Um, if you've ever worshipped, for a prolonged period of time in a setting that was as diverse as the community around it and where there was rich diversity taking place, uh, you know that that's just like a super, super rich experience. And the reason it's so rich and joyful is because it's a reflection of the gospel that we believe in. This gospel that says that before God, we are all on equal footing, sinners deserving of death and damnation, no matter whether we're white or black, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, young or old, we all deserve death. We deserve hell. But we're all also on equal footing at the cross where the same blood of Jesus Christ washed over us and took away our sins, cleansed us from our unrighteousness when he took the penalty that we deserved and he took it on our behalf. That gospel is enacted when we worship in diverse community and it's a picture of what will be true in the end as we worship around God's throne people of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But as beautiful as that is in theory, as nice as it is to talk about, and when you walk into a setting like that, those of you who have been in a setting like that for a prolonged period of time also know it's actually really hard. (laughs) And when you are rubbing shoulders regularly with people from different backgrounds than you who see the world differently than you, you're going to offend each other a lot. I mean, we offend each other enough when we're dealing with people who are raised in the same culture as us, right? It all just gets exacerbated like in the roommate situation when we're living life really closely together as family. 
And so the apostles think it's wise to put Greek speakers in leadership positions because they think some of that offense will be more easily worked through if the leadership of the church reflects the diversity of the church as a whole. And there's people in leadership positions speaking to the problems that are going on. Um, but they wouldn't take just any Greek-speaking Jew for this position of deacon, would they? Right? There are qualifications given. Um, and those qualifications maybe aren't exactly what we would think they would be for a job like this. Look at verse 3 to see those qualifications. There's three of them. Qualifications are these have to be men of good repute, so they have a good reputation in the community. These have to be people who are full of the Holy Spirit. They have to be people who are full of wisdom. Right? We might expect things like these people have to have administrative abilities. These people have to have um, gifts that are in line with management. Um, they have to have a lot of diplomacy and tact because what they're doing is administrating bread. Serving tables is going to be a big part of what they do here, right? But instead, the qualifications are their reputation. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, that they're wise. And that's important for us to note that even in this serving tables type position, the utmost the qualifications of utmost importance are these spiritual qualifications. Now, I want to brag here for a minute on a few of our deacons and deaconesses who have served over the past year that I've been here. Um, and they'll be embarrassed by that, but that's okay. Um, because I really do think that our deacons and deaconesses have lived out the pattern established in this text and the qualifications in this text, right? So I think about a Cliff and Alice Pence, right? I don't know. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to in this last year. And I ask like, hey, so who are you most connected to at the church in their early days of being around here? And the answer that often comes back is, hey, that Cliff and Alice Pence, they uh, made me feel welcome from the moment I came in here. They connected me with people who were like-minded. They celebrated me. They helped me feel seen here and known. Um, what a ministry that they have as deacon and deaconess here at the church and the unseen things that they do day in and day out. And Bob Jankis, I think about, uh, just had a conversation just a week or two ago with somebody, again, newer to the church, who was saying, you know what, within five minutes of meeting Bob, he was already asking me what needs I, could ha I had that the church could maybe come alongside and help with. And when I offhand mentioned that I had a friend who needed a car, he was thinking and he started telling me about somebody he knew that might be a connection that might uh, have, have something to say about getting my friend a car. He didn't have to do that. I, we just met five minutes ago, right? Um, they're living this out. Lynn, Linda, Louise, Char. So often when something comes to Pastor Craig and I, uh, a pastoral care issue in the church, and we're just learning about it, we learn that one of them has already been spending time with those people, encouraging them, come alongside them, comforting them in their time of need. Um, we've celebrated these people before, and there's a whole new round of deacons and deaconesses that are similarly qualified who are already living into the same things and will continue to do so in their new role. But what's uniquely spoken to in this text about what these deacons and deaconesses do is in doing all of those things, they are actually helping to preserve the unity in our church. We don't often think about that aspect of it. But if we think about without the diaconate, without our deacons and deaconesses doing what they do, then all of those things that they do get pushed up a level and pushed up a level and pushed up a level because nobody wants to do them. And then the elders end up spending their whole meeting talking about how are we going to deal with them. We don't have enough hours in the day to do this all ourselves. Who's going to do it? We don't have enough money to hire more staff people. So how is this going to get done? And you can imagine how in that situation... 
as the elders get distracted from leading us in the ministry of the word and praying for us, that disunity could so easily start to creep in and grow in our ranks. So we have these roles, these distinct roles in the church, and it's really, really not just to pacify the type A people in the congregation who like to have order, right? It's in part to preserve the unity that we have in our body. Well, hey, in all three of these ways, um, we're reminded of this big idea that um, we are supposed to be aggressively preserving unity in the church so that God's word can continue to spread. And it is aggressive, the way that the apostles deal with it there in Acts chapter 6. They're aggressive in the way that they call a council and they want to make sure that they're displaying the love of Christ within the community and to all who are on the outside watching. Um, as a result of what they do here, the end of the passage said it, right? The word of God continued to increase. I love that way of speaking about God's kingdom expanding. The word of God continued to increase. And it increases to the point where even priests are coming to the faith. I don't know if when we were reading that at the beginning, if you thought about how crazy that is that priests were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. When a priest under the old covenant, whose whole livelihood is wrapped up in ministering at the temple and these sacrifices that are under the old covenant, when a priest comes to faith in Jesus, they have everything to lose. It's going to wreck their whole life, their whole livelihood, their whole way of providing for their family, right? Because Jesus now has been the ultimate sacrifice and that sacrificial system is no longer needed. But because of what they were seeing, apparently, in verses 2 through 6 here, something they'd never seen before, Greek speakers and Aramaic speakers coming together, people who had no business being one with each other and treating each other like family, coming together as family and working through their issues. Because of that, priests are seeing that and they're saying, you know what, I can't resist this any longer. There's something different about these people. And you know, I wonder, we're here on the North Shore and we talk so often about our friends and neighbors whom we love who are still under the old covenant here on the North Shore, our Jewish friends and neighbors. And we try to scheme up and talk about ways that we can reach them with the love of Christ and help them see what we've experienced in Jesus, our Messiah. And I just wonder, while preparing this text the last week or two, I wonder if maybe the way God wants to reach our friends and neighbors here is maybe through something like this a congregation of people who really has no business being family with one another, who have very different interests, very different backgrounds, young and old, white and black, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, all coming together in one place with every reason to be enemies, every reason to write each other off, every reason to get offended and take their ball and go somewhere else. But yet, coming together as one, offending each other and then talking about it and forgiving one another, and actually making it right, not just apologizing and moving on. Maybe, maybe that's how God wants to do it here on the North Shore, through a picture like that for our friends and neighbors. Let's pray. Lord, we earnestly desire to see a movement here in our neighborhoods and communities like what's depicted here, that the word of God would increase among us. Not so that we can fill our seats, but so that your kingdom would be 
on the advance and that we'd be able to get a front row seat for it. After all, it's your word that's increasing. It's not us that are ultimately doing the work. But Lord, we want to be united as one, as people who are very different from one another, but who nevertheless love one another with the very love that you showed to us. And in doing so, we want to be a picture to the world of your gospel that saves people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated for just a few minutes. Thank you for the questions that you texted in. I'll just take them in the order that they came in. One is, uh, did the church solve the Hellenistic issue by creating the servant ministry? Um, I would say that that was the action that took place that helped work through the particular problem that they were dealing with at that moment. But the three points of our sermon today were three different ways of looking at that same institution of the servant ministry. Three aspects or lenses through which to view what was valuable about what they were doing that could apply to our own day and age question there. Um, This question was a good one. Are you saying that deaconesses or female deacons can have a ministry of the word? Because I said that it's not deacons and deaconesses can have a ministry of the word too. Um, Or can maybe even female leaders who aren't technically deaconesses have a ministry of the word? What opportunities do women have to make to have a ministry of the word at North Sub? And we believe at North Sub that The gifts of the Holy Spirit, which include teaching, teaching the Word of God, are not gender-based gifts, as if God gives them to one gender and not to the other. So we have many women in our congregation who are gifted in ministering the Word, and um, they've taught Sunday school classes and do this semester. They lead life groups and minister the Word that way, and they do, even right now, that's going on. and, but I think that this question and one of the other ones maybe come back to uh, something I need to clarify about what the ministry of the word is. Because when we hear that, maybe some people are thinking ministry of the word equals the Sunday sermon, right? But the ministry of the word in scripture is so much more all-encompassing than that. It takes place in smaller teaching settings. It takes place in small groups in which people speak an apt word into each other's lives. It takes place one-on-one with one another when someone's struggling and you speak a word from Scripture that is inspired by God, right? Um, all of those are ministries of the Word as, uh, that we do on our day-in and day-out basis. And women, um, by all means, are currently, presently, um, and vibrantly ministering the Word here at North Sub. Um, as a teenager or kid, what roles should they look to serve in the church or outreach in the community? And I think that this passage has some things to say. Uh, well, we can highlight some of our junior high and high school students who do serve in many roles in the church that otherwise we'd be scrambling to find a way to get them done, right? Uh, Timmy Fensler in the back right now running the PowerPoint, right? So, and we have a long history here at this church, um, largely cultivated by Robbie, as many of you know, as with our young people serving in roles that benefit the whole congregation, including us adults. But maybe one step beyond that, that I think this passage today applies to our young people, is um, in that unity piece, because this was all all about, right? That if we don't get the unity piece right, it's going to shipwreck us from God's gospel going out. And so 
in junior high and high school, um, there's so much drama that you all have to sift through, right? And it would be easy for in our junior high ministry, in our high school ministry, with the other Christians at your school, for there to be competition, drama, that you would um, start to splinter off into cliques and not love on each other well. And when your friends come to youth group with you, they see uh, a splintered group. That's not compelling to them. But if they come to youth group and see some people who are very different from one another, uh, who maybe would have no business hanging with each other that are nevertheless loving one another, then that's the kind of compelling picture that we saw in this text that could be a compelling picture to uh, young people on the North Shore as well. I believe there is one more question. Uh, Actually, there's two more. What is the significance of pointing out that Nicolaus is a proselyte of Antioch? So that he was listed as one of the seven, and it was also noted that he was a proselyte of Antioch. That means that he was a Gentile by birth, converted to Judaism, and he's a Jewish believer now, but not a Jewish believer ethnically originally, if that makes sense. So it's just a little hint that in the chapters to come, this is going to be expanded to the Gentiles. It hasn't quite yet, but we should already be raising the question in our mind, wait, if somebody not born into the Jewish faith can come to faith in Jesus, um, albeit a Jewish who is now a Jewish believer, what other possibilities are there of Gentiles coming to the faith down the road? And finally, you describe the elders' responsibility as ministry of the word and prayer. Don't they also provide direction for the church, matters of doctrine and church discipline and other chapters of Acts? And yes, it's absolutely true. They are overseers. Elder, often a word that's used for them in the New Testament is overseers. And just that very term itself, overseer, implies that they are going to be overseeing a great number of things at the church. But several of the things listed in this question are actually ministry of the word type things. Providing direction for us in matters of doctrine, that is ministry of the word. They're called to protect us from wolves who would come in and with false teaching. They're called to shepherd the doctrine of our church and make sure we're on track. Church discipline, that's calling folks in the church to see, hey, you're not lining up with what scripture says here. And so we want to help restore you to faith in Jesus and life in Christ the way it's supposed to look. So those are ministries of the word that that falls under, those, those uh, shepherding responsibilities of the elders in our church. Thanks for those questions once again. Um, and now if you'd stand, I'd like uh, to send you out with this benediction. As we're thinking about unity, I thought about the time when Jesus prayed for us, specifically us living today. Um, in John 17, and it was a prayer about our unity. This is Jesus praying. He says, I don't ask for these only, that's the ones who were with him at that moment, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So as you go out this week to connect with people at the well, to disciple them in the word, and then eventually to send them out as empowered disciples to transform the world, may we do so as one, fully united in our spirit and in our purpose. Go and may we go as one.